Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with me, Diana Toman. Me, John Kay. And me, Tony Honigberg. Coming up this week, we're going to be talking to Nancy Payman, who's a Jewish mum who has a rare kidney disease and is asking the community to help fund a miracle drug. And we'll be talking to Dahlia Fleming, who's the executive director of Keshet UK. And she's going to tell us about the Pride in London 2018. As well as all of that, Dr. Ariel Khan is going to be with us. And he's talking about his new novel, Raising Sparks. He's a lecturer at Roehampton University. But before all that, let's get a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week with Vivian Krieger. And we begin with the appointment of Naz Shah to the post of Shadow Equalities Minister. Ms Shah, the Labour MP for Bradford West, was once suspended from the party for calling for the relocation of Israel to the United States. She conceded that social media messages she'd posted about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict were anti-Semitic. Ms Shah subsequently admitted she was ignorant about discrimination against Jews and wanted to win back the community's trust. The Board of Deputies later said that Naz Shah was one of the only people involved in Labour's anti-Semitism crisis who had sought to make amends for her actions. It comes as the chair of the Jewish Leadership Council has claimed Labour's adoption of a new code of conduct on tackling anti-Semitism would actually strengthen claims the party has become institutionally anti-Semitic. The latest row could derail a planned second meeting between Jeremy Corbyn and the leaders of the UK's two main Jewish leadership bodies. The chief rabbi, Ephraim Mervis, has said that relations between Ofsted, the school's inspectorate, and the strictly orthodox community need to be urgently repaired. Ofsted's chief inspector, Amanda Spielman, met the chief rabbi this week, but had earlier given a speech denying her organisation had an anti-faith bias, but said one problem was the conflicting or even downright contradictory messages children get outside school on matters such as the equal rights of women or gay rights. The documentary maker Claude Landsman, best known for the gruelling nine-and-a-half-hour-long Shoah, has died at the age of 92 in Paris. Filmed in 14 countries over 11 years, Shoah, which is Hebrew for catastrophe, had harrowing interviews with victims and perpetrators of the Holocaust. In one long sequence, he posed as a Nazi sympathiser and secretly filmed an SS officer who confided his past. A Jewish mother of two from Finchley with a rare disease where the immune system attacks the kidneys is asking the community to get behind a fundraising effort to help others in her situation. Nancy Payman, who's 36, has organised a sponsored park walk at the end of September to raise money for research by two leading London hospitals after doctors who took a risk with her treatment found it worked. And we'll be speaking to Nancy Payman later in the show. And finally, an anaesthetist from Edgware who helps Jewish emergency ambulance charity Hatzola has been awarded a coveted British Citizen Award for volunteering. Dr Asha Lewinson, a senior registrar specialising in anaesthetics and intensive care within the NHS, was one of 29 individuals recognised last week at a prestigious ceremony at the Palace of Westminster. Thanks very much, Vivian. Well, with us now to look through some aspects of the paper this week for the Jewish News is the news editor, Justin Cohen, and the editor himself, Richard Ferrer. Justin, first of all, one of the stories in the paper this week is that of the Labour Party and anti-Semitism. Yes, surprise, surprise. It's back in the news. At the moment, the focus is on the concern over the new code of conduct, which part of the Labour NEC has adopted. And next week, I believe it was due to be rubber stamped by the fuller NEC. 
concern here is that they've adopted the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition in its basic form, those few lines, but the accompanying examples of contemporary anti-Semitism have only been accepted in part. So they've taken on some of them and they've dropped others. In its place, they've decided to create their own definitions and include some other contemporary examples of anti-Semitism, specific words, which indeed are problematic nowadays. But the fact is here, the Jewish community is concerned that if the party has decided for itself what constitutes anti-Semitism and that that is different in slightly from what the community considers to be the definition of anti-Semitism, then what does that say about the current state of relations between the community and, and the party? Why have they done this? Because the Conservative Party accepted the, I think, IHRA words. So has the SNP, which is a left of centre political party, some would say, in its entirety. Yeah, it's the government, it's the Scottish government, it's the Welsh government, it's more than 120 councils across the UK. It's only the Labour Party that felt the need to redefine this definition. And unfortunately, it just underlines further the schism between the community and the party. We know full well there is a gap between the Board of Deputies and the Labour Party. That was the case under its former president, Jonathan Arkush. What about its current president? Is it the same approach? I think so. I think the uh, differences exist between the mainstream community and the party. It's not about an individual. Yes, Jonathan Arkush was pretty strident in, in, in putting forward his views, but I don't think anything is particularly going to change. And we've spoken this week to Jonathan Goldstein, the uh, relatively new chairman of the Jewish Leadership Council, who has said that uh, if these proposals are adopted as they currently are, then it would suggest, it would back up the view that the party has become institutionally anti-Semitic. Well, let's talk now about the new Foreign Secretary. That's Jeremy Hunt. He's featured in the paper. For what reason? When I first heard that he had been appointed as the new Foreign Secretary to replace Boris Johnson, my first reaction was, I've never seen him in a foreign policy kind of forum. I didn't know his views particularly on Israel and the Palestinians. I thought as health secretary, he probably hadn't expressed them particularly. But it's interesting to see on his website that a large part of the foreign policy section on his personal website is dedicated to this issue. He makes it very clear that he uh, opposes BDS. He equally makes it clear that he thinks that Donald Trump's move of the American embassy to Jerusalem was, was the wrong move. And I think this is a man who clearly has an interest in this area, who's quite engaged, who has opinions on the area, and it's certainly not going to be particularly new. I think it'll be interesting to see how he enters the fray, how he differentiates himself from Boris Johnson, but certainly a man who, who's engaged in these issues. Well, the Foreign Secretary, of course, is responsible for relations with Britain around the world. Let's go out of this world now and, and to the moon even, uh, with Israel in particular. Richard, what's the story there? This is real boy's own stuff. I don't know if you've uh, seen Ben Gurion Airport in the departures lounge when you go through customs and you get your passport checked. There's this really exciting life-size model of this Space IL probe, which for years now, I think since 2013, they've been trying to raise enough money, private money, to send this thing to the moon. Well, Israel have announced this week that uh, in December from Cape Canaveral, they're going to launch this thing all 230 odd thousand miles into space and land it on the moon next February. It's going to be the first basically privately funded space 
exploration of any country and only the fourth country in the world that's actually sent anything to land on the moon very exciting and, and i think it just shows the the ambition and the chutzpah that israel has <laughs> is it manned richard no it, it's not manned no they're, they're a little bit far behind on the whole yuri gagarin chuck uh, apes and dogs into space <laughs> thing i'm sure it won't be long but it, it's along the lines i think in terms of i wouldn't say a pr stunt in the same way that the um elon musk tesla car was uh, something of a kind of a PR stunt that hit the headlines mm. a few months ago. I'm not entirely sure what the scientific reasoning is for it. It doesn't seem that it's got any of those. I think it's more a case of like Everest. Uh, we're climbing it because it's there and it's, uh, it's the first giant leap for Israel into the unknown. It's quite remarkable, really, for a relatively small country to get involved with something like that. It's extraordinary. It just shows the innovation, the creativity, the ambition a small little startup nation, which it is, to uh, journey so far away from the earth and to hopefully improve things for many millennia to come. Now, let's talk about the movie industry and Claude Landsman in particular, film director, who's died quite recently. Yes, we had a, a huge loss last week. 92-year-old Claude Landsman, the great French uh, documentary maker. Now, he uh, documented a lot of things to do with the, the horrors of the Second World War and the last century. But I think the number one film he will be remembered for is Shoah, that nine and a half hour 14 countries, um, I think over 11 years, and this was a microscopic analysis of the people and the places that were at the centre of, um, of the Nazis' genocide. I had the uh, great pleasure of interviewing him many, many years ago, I think it was around 2001, and he expressed to me his absolute dislike for Schindler's List and Hollywood representations of the Holocaust. He said they were unfair, they were unrealistic, they weren't uh, the right sort of tribute to the people that died. He was really only interested in facts. He was absolutely meticulous in his analysis of facts and truth and memory. And uh, he thought that uh, reimaginations, tinsel towns, popcorn munching versions, he had very short shrift for, for Spielberg uh, and said that it was documentaries and truth that would hold out for the next generation. But did he not also appreciate that actually, if you're trying to get a message across to a lot of people, that it is easier to do that in a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour drama than it is in a nine-and-a-half-hour documentary. Yes, yes. In, in fact, it's, that was one of the questions I asked him. I said, do you think that there's a danger that Ralph Fiennes' portrayal of Amon Goeth in that film might glamorise Nazism? However, without that film, less people would know about his crimes. And he was actually quite rude to me on the phone. He said, you know nothing of my work. How old are you? <laughs> yes, there are big representational problems here. I will no longer speak. I mean, it was an honour to get absolutely you know, barracked by the man. And I've done a little piece in this week's paper, just conveying a little bit of that. Um, but yeah, a, a man whose awesome talent will be learnt about for many, many years to come. Mm -hmm. and perhaps the number one piece of documentation on film that we'll ever have of that period of time. He was French. He was Jewish, but he lost no relatives uh, or loved ones in the Holocaust. But he, he took it upon himself as his life's work to document the loss of European Jews. Richard Ferrer, Justin Cohen, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News, and we're delighted to be talking now to Dahlia Fleming, who is the Executive Director of Keshet. 
UK about the Jewish participation in the London Pride 2018 parade. Dahlia, there is a basket full of people who joined in with all of this, the advocacy groups and all sorts of other people in partnership with West London Synagogue and Kingston Liberal Synagogue. One thought that strikes me right away is what sort of orthodox support did you get? Because those, of course, are from the progressive movement. We had marching with us cross-denominational support and individuals, people who walked in from northwest London. So the people that we had marching with us were from all different denominations and none. And none. People who aren't particularly affiliated but marching in a Jewish group felt important to them in terms of showing who they are being represented through being Jewish and LGBT+. One thing that struck us in the studio was the question of LGBT+. Could you Mm -hmm. expand a little on what the plus means? I can indeed. The plus stands for different identities that may not be specifically uh, included with lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans or transgender. There is no perfect acronym. For us, the important thing is about understanding who we represent, who we are trying to make sure are included within our communities. So the plus might be queer or questioning or pansexual or asexual or intersex. Um, And for each different organization, that plus might mean different things. But for us, the really important bit is to not be tokenistic, not to have say that you're working for inclusion for a particular group and then actually not doing anything about it. Because that word queer has odd Mm -hmm. connotations for certainly people of my generation. Is it now Mm -hmm. being generally used? Queer is an interesting term in the sense that it does have historically been used to put people down and it has definitely been used in a negative way, but it is also very much reclaimed. And within this country, some people listening might have heard, well, you know, in America, it's really well used, but not here. But actually here, um, it is particularly amongst some younger generations. But I definitely know people who are kind of 40, 50, 60, 70 plus who use it as well. And it's a, it's a term that's been reclaimed because it, it allows people to, to use a word that actually is, it defines them whilst not really being definable. It doesn't, it means about that kind of the flexibility around gender and sexuality whilst allowing them to not having kind of a strict definition, if that makes sense and helps. Yes, it does. Thank you. We know that Tel Aviv has a very, very large gay community. Mm -hmm. And and in fact, the Israelis are very happy to have their pride marches and everything else. Do you Mm -hmm. get any support from the gay community in Israel? I mean, Keshet UK specifically is actually an, an education and advocacy charity. So the fact that we, we do coordinate uh, all the different Jewish organisations is, is predominantly because we're kind of able to do so to help people be able to participate. And we're very focused on the Jewish, British community, uh, helping making them more inclusive through training. But in terms of Israel, we're definitely coordinated with a few different individuals out there, because obviously if they're doing work within a Jewish setting, we might as well share our knowledge and have an understanding about how we all kind of communicate the being inclusive and making sure that our communities are safe for LGBT plus Jewish people is, is possible in all communities, whether Israel or the UK. Dahlia, would you know how many Jewish people took part in London Pride and did you tend the Jewish people, that is, to march together? 
for London Pride, they now make you have wristbands. So actually, people have to register to go to London Pride in March. I don't, you know, anyone can watch it. But if you want to be inside in the parade, you have to register. So we had approximately 150 people marching with us from lots of different groups, from West London Synagogue, the Jewish LGBT Plus group, Gay Jews in London, Beit Klal Yisrael, and the Vot, which is a group for LGBT plus parents. And then we had another group, which is the parents of Jewish, gays and lesbians. What was really wonderful about it is there was such a range of people there. For the first time ever, I invited my mum to come and march as an ally. So as someone who is not LGBT plus, she marched, which was really wonderful to have her with us. We had all different age ranges. We had people of all different abilities. We had Jews of colour marching with us. It was really wonderful in terms of showing the, the genuine diversity of of our community, whether you're LGBT plus or not. And as a group, are you very much identifiable as Jewish? We had the, um, there's a group of LGBT plus Jewish rabbis and cantors who were there and they kind of, we also had a chuppah, but if people generally wear kippot, they were wearing them. If they wear tzitzit, they were wearing them. Some people were wearing talit to really show that. People were holding signs up saying, you know, Shabbat Shalom. We were, you know, we danced, we, uh, we sung songs, we did Israeli dancing. It was a very Jewish moment and a Jewish group. If you were dancing and singing and all the other things that you mentioned, where was this actually physically taking place? We were marching from Portland Place around Great Portland Street all the way down to Downing Street, basically. So all the way through London, through around kind of the Oxford Street area. I can't remember the exact, around Piccadilly Circus. And you just kind of, people were just, singing songs and then at one point we kind of slowed down and people started dancing and um, had a lot of the youth movements with us and they are all very good at creating a very joyful environment of, of chanting so um, no, it's really wonderful. Just one thing I did want to ask you about the West London Synagogue Walk and Talk Pride study session, what did that involve? I was not there because I was waiting at the meeting point, so I can't tell you exactly what it included. But it was one of the the members, I think, one of the rabbis from West London Synagogue. And as they, because they they had a service in the morning, so anyone who went to that service was then able to walk and join us. And I think that they ended up having an interesting discussion about gender and the different genders within the Torah and other Jewish texts as they were walking towards us. But I was not there, so I, I can't tell you much more than that. If people want to get in touch with your organisation, how do they go about doing it? We have a website, which is keshetuk.org, and we're on Twitter and Facebook. They can email us at info at keshetuk.org as well. Dahlia, thank you so much for joining us today. We could go on talking about this a great deal more, but unfortunately time is against us. Thanks so much. If you would like any more information on any of the stories or indeed any of the guests that you've heard on this episode of The Jewish Views, then please go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. A new novel has just come out. It's called Raising Sparks. It's set in Israel. And joining us now is the author, Dr. Ariel Khan, and he's a lecturer at Roehampton University. And Ariel, it centres around an individual called Malka, doesn't it? That's right, yeah. Malka is a young girl growing up in the Orthodox community in Jerusalem, in the Jewish quarter. And she's very gifted, but has no opportunity to express that. So she it's about her, she runs away from home, ends up in Tzfat, because one of the things she discovers is that she's a Kabbalist. She's very interested in the mystical side of Judaism. She thinks she'll go to the source, but unfortunately falls in there with a cult. 
which she brings down. I mean, I don't want to do too many spoilers here. So her, following her journey across the country, she ends up then sleeping rough on the beach in Jaffa, where she finds her feet because she's picked up by a restaurant that's a bit like Jamie Oliver's 13 that trains, in this case, Arab and Israeli street children. And she finds a kind of harmonious place before being pulled back to Jerusalem where her journey started. You say she's very gifted. In what way? Well, I studied in Israel for three years sort of towards uh, rabbinic studies. I was very interested in mysticism and in the way that modern Hebrew actually uses these words with tremendous resonance. I mean, I once heard Amos Oz talk about writing in modern Hebrew, and he says it's a bit like playing the piano in the Grand Canyon because you write something like bread, and it resonates all the way back to the Bible. So in my case, I thought about the word Kabbalah, which means something you receive. And in modern Hebrew, it's a till receipt. Oh, would you like your Kabbalah? And I thought, what would happen if you had somebody who could actually wake up those energies in modern Hebrew and kind of take them back to their source, to transformative effect? You say she's from an ultra-Orthodox community. Does she dress in an ultra-Orthodox way? Is she identified very much throughout the story as being ultra-Orthodox? Well, she does initially. She's the daughter of a Rosh Hashiva, so the head of a religious institution. So there are lots of laws about how she can look, who she can talk to, and so on. And she tries to leave those behind. But in a way, I'm also interested in, well, what can religion say about, constructively, about some of the problems in modern Israel? Can it be a place from which to effect dialogue with other cultures, other voices? So there's a character who's in love with her, who's a Russian immigrant. One of her closest friends in Jaffa is a gay Palestinian. But in a way, because they're connecting to each other through food, through shared culture, she's able to use her religious views as, as a means of connecting to people around her rather than as a kind of more closed off perspective with which her community imposes on her at the start of the novel. You talked about her Kabbalistic approach. Uh, some might not quite know what being Kabbalistic is. Sure. Um, I mean, because it, it is something that is just part of Judaism as such. Yeah, I think that's a good question. Of course, being a Jewish question, there's more than one answer. But what I would say for this character, and just to explain to our listeners, so Kabbalah is the mystical strand of Judaism that suggests that potentially everything has meaning. A good way to explain this is perhaps to let you know a little bit about what the title means. So Isaac Luria, from whom I'm sort of descended according to my grandma, who was like the Mozart of the Kabbalah, came to Tzfat in the 14th century. And he said that actually every action that we do potentially can raise sparks, can reunite the, work, the broken world that we see and give it a sense of wholeness of divinity. So I almost argue that humans are co-creators with God. It's part of our responsibility. And that's where the term tikkun or tikkun olam, which people might be familiar with, comes from. Repairing the world. Exactly, repairing or healing the world. So my protagonist, Malka, she's got to kind of heal herself first, but she's an agent of healing for people around her. And Kabbalah really became more popular a few years ago, didn't it, when people like Madonna started following? Yeah, you've got, I guess, Kabbalah light, where mm. people are like, you know, the, the kind of new age thing, let's borrow this idea or that idea. What I like in the world in which I set it is showing how Kabbalah resonates, for instance, with Sufi mysticism. There are other, this can actually be a part of Judaism because it's quite universalist that can help us connect to other voices in other cultures too. 
your characters in this book are they based on people that you actually came across and people that you know okay well this is always the million dollar question who are these people actually they're in the acknowledgements i mention a tragic love story that's sort of behind this novel because when i was studying in israel i was in a Shiva called Rabbi Brovinder, Rabbi Riskin's Yeshiva in Efrat. And my study partner was an American called Matt Eisenfeld. And we actually set up a creative writing group together. And he was deeply in love with his best friend, Sarah Duke, and he used to talk about her quite a lot. And should I tell her? Should I not tell her? I said, just tell her. And then I traveled back here, came to study English literature in Cambridge, and I got a letter from him that morning. And I was walking with it to the cafeteria. And someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, didn't you study in Israel with Matt? I said, yes. She was from America as well. She said, oh, see the news today. And uh, they were both killed in one of the early bus bombings on bus on Jaffa Road, just outside oh, Jerusalem. And I was holding this letter from him that he'd posted before, telling me that, you know, they were engaged. And, and I... It's taken me a long time, but I really felt there was such a... You must have gone cold at that particular point, that it, sort of shivery feeling. Yeah, because also there was, it was in kind of leafy Cambridge. There was no one who I felt could really relate to that sense of loss. But more than that, the two people that I felt had gone were so precious and such amazing people. And I thought, one day I want to share something of what I know about those two people. So although there's a love story in my novel that it's not those two people, but it's sort of inspired mm. by them... And so when this novel came out, I wrote to their parents and sent them the first copies that I received, That's just nice. to a, a little, share a little bit of those sparks. Ariel, is it written in the third person? It is, yeah. I mean, the, the characters, it's mostly told from Marcus's point of view. Every couple of chapters you hear from Moshe, who's the Russian immigrant who's in love with her, who's following her across the country, is trying to track her down. But yes, the third person is the kind of way of letting the reader eavesdrop on Marcus' thoughts. But those thoughts are generated by you. How was it to speak as, as in the mind of a very young girl? That was also, I think, a really moving challenge. I mean, I grew up in a, a family in Hendon, five children. I'm the only boy. I had four younger sisters. So I suppose they made a feminist of me. <laughs> And my grandfather, who passed away in his early 90s, uh, my mother's father, was a big feminist. He had a really strong impact on me. He was a follower of Heschel and Martin Luther King. And I thought, in university, I read a wonderful essay by Virginia Woolf, where she says, it's got a room of one's own. She tries to imagine what would have happened if Shakespeare had a sister as gifted as he were. And I thought, what would that mean in a Jewish context? You know, what would happen if you had a, a young woman who's able to do extraordinary things because of her Jewish identity and she's living in a world that doesn't recognize her yet? So it's almost like, I hope, a letter to the future of what, what, what could be, who are we potentially nurturing in our, in our midst? What could they do to make things more whole? Your Judaism is clearly important to you, but is that more of a cultural Judaism or a religious Judaism, or you're just interested in the broad spectrum, if you like, of Judaism? I would say yes to both. I mean, I, I love reading and, and writing about Jewish subjects, but also I teach at the London School of Jewish Studies. I'm a member of the New North London Synagogue, a Masorti Synagogue, and bringing up my children in that kind of quite egalitarian community space that's also a lot about tikkun olam, I mean, one of the things I hope is that they can mutually nurture one another, that if a practice can sensitize us to the fact that there's something 
more important than us, larger than us, and that then potentially when we go out into the world, we try and make the world feel more congruent with that sense of harmony that comes to us in our best religious moments. This is your debut novel. Are you planning on another? Oh, more than planning. I mean, it, it's an amazing thing to have a, a book out into the world. And it's also very much empowered me to think of the next thing that I want to write, which feels like it's also going to be a have a Jewish theme or a Jewish strand and have a sense of history to it too. Well, the book is called Raising Sparks. It's by our guest, Dr. Ariel Khan, and it's published by Blue Moose. Ariel, thank you very much. Thank you. If you would like any more information on any of the stories, or indeed the guests that you've heard in this episode of The Jewish Views, then go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News, and our guest here today is Nancy Payman. Nancy is a Jewish mother of two from Finchley, and Nancy has a rare kidney disease and is asking the community to help fund a miracle drug for others in her situation. Nancy, from what I've read, you were very young when you were diagnosed with this kidney disease. Can you tell me a bit more about it? Yeah, I was 15 months old. My mother woke me up from my cot and she saw that something was wrong. I was very puffy, so I had a lot of fluid retention and I just was very drowsy and lethargic. And that's where she phoned the ambulance and I ended up going to the Edgware General Hospital and then I was transferred to Great Ormond Street where I was diagnosed. What's the miracle drug that you're asking sponsors to sponsor? I'm really lucky. When I was first diagnosed, they tried me on a variety of different drugs, including steroids and another chemotherapy drug called cyclophosphamide, which is a very, very strong drug. You can take it maybe no more than once or twice in your life because it's so strong. And I just didn't respond to it at all. And he just had a hunch to try me on another chemotherapy drug, which doesn't have the same severe long-term side effects called venchristine and I responded within a week it was quite immediate and that's always been my go-to drug they thought they made a breakthrough but unfortunately other children with my illness didn't respond like I did so I'm really lucky that I've found what I call it my miracle drug because I would have been in a very different situation had I not responded to it but other people have not found that drug yet for them that did what being Christine did for me so they end up having various relapses and their kidneys become so damaged that then they go on to dialysis and then you're looking at a transplant except a transplant isn't a cure because it's the diseases that your immune system attacks your kidneys. So your immune system quite often attacks the new kidneys after a transplant. So a transplant often is just buying time rather than it's not a cure. What effect has your kidney disease had on the way you live your life, particularly with two very small children? I've never known anything different. So because I got this disease at such a young age, it's it's part of me and I've just kind of accepted it. And it gives you such a, it does, there are positives to it. Like it gives you such a positive outlook on life. Um, You see things in a very different lens. 
I actually went through a period where I had 20 years being healthy and I only had a relapse last year and that was the first relapse I had with children and I, I did find that tough. I ended up missing my son's fourth birthday party because I was in hospital and I, fa I found that really, really tough. But then when I got better, it just made me appreciate them even more. You have to think in a positive way and you have to learn to live with your disease rather than battle it. The sponsored park walk that you're hoping, well, I assume yeah. you've actually got it set up for the end of September. Um, yeah, nearly where 50 will that people. Be? Where will that be, Nancy? Which park are we talking about? Rich, Richmond Park. We picked it because it's the biggest um, royal park in London and um, we're doing 50 miles, so we needed a really big park because otherwise you just end up walking round and round in small circles. When you say that the money is being raised for research to be carried out looking into mm -hmm. this, mm -hmm. uh, presumably whatever money you do raise uh, will be a drop in the ocean compared to what they really need to actually investigate this thoroughly. Yeah, unfortunately, kidney disease suffers from a lack of fundraising because for some reason it just doesn't have the same draw as some of the other major charities. So yes, it is a drop in the ocean, but you have to start somewhere. And I'm, I'm hoping that I'm doing a lot of work via social media, that I'm just raising awareness about kidney disease, because obviously my disease is rare, but there's so many different other forms of kidney disease, and they're not so rare. So it's not just looking at my disease, it's looking at the broad spectrum of kidney disease. And how much are you hoping to raise? Oh, wow, what a question. <laughs> I'd like to raise as much as... I've got 50 people walking, so my aim is to raise between fifteen and £20,000. That's a considerable sum, and the money goes to where? Who, who does the research? It's a fund run by UCL and the Royal Free Hospital, where I was treated. I was treated at the Royal Free Hospital, and it is also my way of just thanking them because... I just couldn't have asked for better care. The NHS, it just makes you realise how lucky we are to have the NHS. They were absolutely amazing. Do Great Ormond Street still work with this problem? Yes, very much so. And they have really strong links with other hospitals like the Royal Free because as kids transition to adulthood, they help them go from Great Ormond Street to other hospitals. So they're very, very much involved in this area. Still. And my parents are still in touch with my consultant. He's in his 80s now. He found my miracle drug when I was younger. So although you call this a miracle drug, as you said before, it's not a miracle drug for everybody because no. everybody's system is different exactly. and their bodies react differently, I assume. Exactly. And that's what makes the disease so tricky. But there's a government project called the 100,000 Geno Project and cancer patients or patients with rare diseases like myself are able to qualify to go to be tested. And what they're doing at the moment is they're looking at my genetic profile and seeing if they can work out a genetic pattern that they can match to other patients with my disease to try being Christine out on them because Again, as I said, it doesn't have that, those severe long-term side effects that some of the other drugs have. Like, it's enabled me to have two children. And if I continued down the path that I was going before I took the drug, I, I wouldn't have been able to have two children or any child, for that matter. Would that have affected your fertility? A hundred percent, yeah. If, if I took cyclophosphamide, the drug I was originally on, 
I would definitely not be able to have children. How does your disease affect your day-to-day working? Because you're a speechwriter, aren't you? So I had to resign from my post. I just wanted to kind of take a break and be with my kids after what happened to me last year. But again, I'm really lucky that because I responded to this drug, it's allowed me to live a pretty normal life. I mean, when I was a child, I was in and out of hospital a lot. But that's nothing compared to being on dialysis and going through numerous kidney transplants. So I just want that for other patients. I feel it's my duty because I'm in the position I'm in to help other patients with my disease find their miracle drug. Do you look on yourself as a, well, as an ambassador, if you like, for this new drug? Yes, I'm desperate for other patients to be in the same position as me. I've joined various support groups on social media and just reading what they're going through makes me even more passionate about fundraising. Finally, how do people get in touch to help raise funding for you? Where do they go? If people are interested in walking, they just have to email walkingforkidneys at gmail.com. And to sponsor me, they just have to go to Just Giving and type Walking for Kidneys in the search box. We will put that on our website as well. Thank you so much. And thank you for taking time to talk to us. And I wish you all the luck going forward in the future. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Now it's time for our rabbinic thought for the week, which this week comes from Rabbi Michael Evandovid from Edgware Mazorti Synagogue. We are now inside the period of the three weeks, called in Hebrew Ben Ametzarim, that goes between the fast of the 17th of Tammuz and the long fast of Tisha B'Av, the day our temple in Jerusalem was destroyed twice. These weeks are considered the saddest time of the Jewish calendar. The calls of the prophets emphasize the responsibility of the people in this tragedy. One of the Aftarot we read, the second of three Aftaras of rebuke, will show the prophet Jeremiah rebuking the people because they went far from God and his Torah. The Aftara starts with the words, Listen the word of God, house of Jacob, all the family of the house of Israel. So says the Lord, what did your ancestors find wrong with me to make them go so far away from me, to make them go after vanities and become themselves vanity? Even if Israel was once loving as a bride, now they have left their God and he hurts because of the rejection of the people. How can it be that he was not good enough for Israel? What caused the people to give up and go after vanity, after empty things? It looks they were afraid that life is indeed vanity. Daftarah continues, For my people have committed two evils. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. If they would have been faithful to God, they would have been connected to the source of living waters. Now, they only have broken cisterns, again, symbols of emptiness and lack of meaning. The Midrash said that the people became despaired of the world that they didn't have strength 
to keep their hope and faith in a cruel, seemingly meaningless world. So they turn to idolatry, to vanity, trying to find that meaning. The Midrash asks God to pity them instead of punishing them. Don't punish them anymore. Take them closer to you, the source of hope, the source of living waters, the source of meaning. We live in a world where there is an evident disconnection between us and God and between each other. When we're experiencing this time of mourning in our calendar, we can be comforted in knowing that God cries with us, cries and mourns about this disconnection. He wants us to return and be together. However, he promised through Jeremiah that there is hope, because the prophet said, Make us return, and we will return, because you are the Lord, my God. Thank you to Rabbi Michal Evan David from Edgeware Mazorti Synagogue for our thought for the week. And that's it for this edition of the Jewish Views. Thank you to our guests, Nancy Payman, Dahlia Fleming, and Dr. Ariel Khan. Thank you to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and indeed to you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. So from me, Tony Honickberg. Me, Diana Toman. And from John Kay. It's goodbye. So do join us next time here on The Jewish Views.